Feed gaps are one of the major impediments to livestock production, finding enough energy and protein for stock when it isn't readily available. Growing your own feed is always the cheapest feed sheep producers will ever find, and the new range of legumes have been created specifically for the famous autumn feed gap, a gap that currently in Western Australia appears to be widening in many parts of the state. You're listening to The Yarn. It's a podcast for the Australian wool industry. I'm Ellie Bigwood. Having been bred specifically for their hardiness, persistence and very high feed quality, Ceredellas are now being grown by those they were intended for. One of those farmers is wool grower Alastair McDougall from Narragin in Western Australia's Great Southern, who said to keep sheep thriving in the region, new feed-based species had to be found. And with changing soil and climate conditions as well, he needed to do something differently. We've definitely got to do something differently because we've got quite significant rising of the water table um, and rising of the salt table and not many metres, even you know, down to parts of a metre um, below the level of some of the plains, uh, we've got you know, salt up to that point. It's not going to come much further and we might have some quite significant swaths of ground uh, affected. Trees have trees have their advantage, but you can't. You know, they're not a grazable thing. Yep. So, so do we need to need to put um, salt bush into the mix? How do we drain it? Uh, it would be possible to say ridge that in a herringback, you know, herringbone format down the gully. Still let the let the surplus water drain and flush the salt out. That maybe maybe even Messina or these these plants in between ridge it. You know, the, I, th- I think we've we've. There's water there. It's got salt in it as a problem. It's not, mostly it's not really brine. The other bit that's mixed in the bargain that we haven't spoken about at all is the bit that really showed up as obvious when I ripped some of the, the salt stuff we were just talking about. In fact, just how hard it is. You think, why won't the blooming salt, you know, you get a rain and you think it's going to flush away. And it doesn't. You rain dries up and there's the salt still there on yeah. the top. You know, why didn't it flush away? It turns out that the soil under that is is quite hard and panned. So, so you know, there is an aspect of the program that's got to be um, soil amelioration. Mm-hmm. Get it so we can get the roots back in the ground. We've clearly got rainfall patterns now that give us particularly less rain in our autumn break and less defined autumn breaks. Yep. I had a certain farm advisor almost laugh me out of the room when I told him that on my best pasture was on my first year out of stubble. Um, like it's possible. So these, these medics certainly have an interesting possibility fitting into the changed weather situation. We're getting less rain in total and we're getting less defined break in particular. So we're not getting the ground wet in the autumn. So again, that circles back to that's why we're looking at the Cerradellas. They may well be a more useful new tool to fit into you know, what sort of plants do we grow. So life before legumes, let's say, um, you've only just sown these quite recently well, your pastures predominantly your clover, your subclovers, which you were talking about, and what else would fill that feed oh, gap? We our, essentially our pastures would be pretty typical in the sense of um, ryegrass, clover, obviously some capeweed, yep. um, a little bit of wireweed, not much, uh, not much barley grass, um, few bromes, mm-hmm. uh, but essentially a, you know, the traditional sort of ryegrass and clover fundamental base. Part of the reason why the cerradillas may well lend themselves into the changing environment, their apparently unique capacity to, if they start to germinate, then the moisture becomes unavailable. They can virtually hibernate or stop, regress back, wait a bit in the next shower run, and then up they can come. Whereas, you know, the subclover, for all that I'm an admirer of subclover, uh, subclover, once it gets the germination gets triggered, it'll, you know, fag out, 
you know, ears tipped up and, and it'll die. Um, Cerradellas apparently have the unique capacity to, in fact, just halt or regress a bit, then when some more moisture comes, uh, carry on and germinate. So, you know, that, that in, you know, with our weather pattern, get our ground ripped and get it looser and be prepared to do that at least every few years. Like we're, we're in a more continuous pasture situation. Once you get the seed bank there, then we get phenomenal growth of clover um, after the crop. Mm-hmm. And then, then yeah. you know, potentially back into crop next year or at the most, you know, one in, two out. So Cerradellas may well have a, have a place in that uh, regime. If these Cerradellas to prove to have the hard-seeded attributes, even better than the clovers, and their aggressive root system, you might say the potential downsides I'm not yet to learn about is are they too prone to red mite damage? Are they are they um, some of the varieties with the bigger seeds are prone to budworm problems in the spring? So still some question marks about how much have we got to nurse it and guard it. Yep. Uh, the noises, you know, the advice is that the going a bit unpalatable at the time of setting seed in the spring at least sort of tends to guard against the stock gobble up the top off it, you know, while you're busy trying to get seed. They get palatable later. You know, as I said, I, I'm mostly into stock, mostly wool rather than meat. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, clearly meat's got a critical part in the whole process. So back to the importance of getting medics of any and all sorts that, that give a mix that'll give us quality pastures. Pasture renovation isn't something that you can do overnight. It takes a lot of research. Where are you going to put them? What information helped you uh, discover what species you might plant? And, yeah, what, where can other producers access good information? <laughs> that is a fair question because information seems to be quite hard to get rather than easy, and it comes out of diverse fields that I get rather cross about the the lack of flow of information from the the cropping sort of side of the world to the stock livestock side. Mm-hmm. Um, when when it, it's obvious that that some of the the North Point um, you know deeper tillage gives you the non-inversion tillage. Um, that's important to get your your root zone and your water harvesting as good as you can for growing pastures as well as crops. It's the lack of transfer of that information into the pasture world is a bit annoying, but. Um, so I've experimented around with it. I've I've watched for many years. So being an old bloke rather than a young young chap, you know, had a fair few years to watch it and you make mistakes and whoops, that doesn't work. As in you've seen through other producers trying it or oh, Probably mostly learnt lessons the hard way myself. Made a fair few mistakes, you know, what's the experience that's accumulated mistakes. No, I'm I'm an optimistic bloke with a, a pretty observant set of eyes and Professor Ron Ling uh, gave me some invaluable advice in terms of the critical bits of how to set up, you know, like making rations. What have you got to achieve when you come to terms with what you can do with with your own conserved straw? Put that together with a relatively minimal minimal amount of other minerals, urea for non-protein nitrogen, mm-hmm. energy as in proportion to the category of stock that you feed. Yep. So that's really taking information out of the feedlotting world and transfer that technology that comes back to how do how do we in fact achieve can we spell the pasture in the autumn or feed our stock in in tough times how can we keep our you know breeding ewe flock when when the season's blimmin' ordinary and you spent the last few you know the previous years before that mm-hmm. get your flock up get your hoggett ewes get them mated ready to lamb and then there's a season failure yep. 
And and it's nothing short of criminal to then think, oh no, I've just got to send them to contending, you know, for the abattoirs, yeah. because it's, it's your breeding flock. Mm. So so you might say the total. I'm I'm more concerned about the total of the global picture of it. Get your production, get your soil in order, um, get the right species that that gives us the best potential. Have a backup system of of a feed system that you can take the sheep out of the paddock. I've been certainly guilty of, and I haven't yet got fully set up what you would call feed lots. I've tended to had not had the water resources sort of set up, so I've been, admittedly, very guilty of, of at times flogging paddocks because I use the paddocks as feedlot pens. The sheep are really getting what I put in there, and they're watering the dam, and, and they run around and graze to get the bit of clover burr. Um, you know, when I would be better to have been able to take the sheep out of the paddock. Think of it in global terms. There's no one silver bullet. You know, these medics won't, th- th- these uh, Cerradellas won't, you know, oh, the magic silver bullet. No, it's not like that. It's just one more tool in, in our armoury. Um, and the more we can we can think broadly about how to dovetail those bits together, get synergies out of out of each of the sections uh, to give us some production advantage so we at least can stay in business, it's got to be a win-win. So you've done you've done the hard yards. You've sown you've sown all the seeds. You've got the pastures, despite um, the lack of rain here in your Narragin winter, they are still popping up. Let's go. Let's skip forward to say twelve months, two years from now. How do you hope to see these pastures then? Oh, I'd like to think that we can manipulate them to get up, you know, good percentages of of the legumes, if we can even get it. Of course, that we can harvest seed and and uh, spread that more widely on the place of course that's that's got to be a plus uh but mostly if we can get the root systems that tap into the soil better can can scrounge nutrients that we we perhaps have to feed it less rather than more for still good production um i'd be pretty pleased if we could get that you know pull that off might have to come back here in 12 months and see how it's going <laughs> well, well i mean obviously i'm optimistic about it though though uh, as we've just been looking there's, there's not a massive density of seeds up we think we've sown them about the right uh, rate per hectare mm-hmm. um we thought we were sowing it you know shallow enough to get the seed to germinate and it's not been very kind that we've been short of moisture rather than not maybe i should have used my oz cedar and you know use press wheels and put them in furrows so we've got a bit of water harvesting into it you know, whereas normally that's in recent winters that's been you know we get us i would call it for here a classic narragin winter wet and i'm in the valley you know down downstream from uh, along along the creek area um quite a bit of clay soil so it can flood you know i've avoided it and gone back to you might say older traditional top seeding because in those circumstances having the seeds up on top and in, in a bit of bit of drainage is an advantage this year it's perhaps a disadvantage mm-hmm. but look you win some and lose some we'll get there and finally you are a little bit of an innovator how do you propose a way of potentially harvesting these legumes Oh, <laughs> I've, I've, I've been given access to another machine that, in fact, uh, might be able to suck this stuff up and get it into a header. Uh, I think it's, I think it's got the potential to uh, go with with uh, fine style. <laughs> I'm probably not able to talk a huge amount about that yet. <laughs> I say like, you're keeping it very on the down low. <laughs> well, <laughs> that's okay. <laughs> well, it's easier to come up later with a with a win win than to get shot down because you you fall in flames when. You, but it didn't work. But no, I think there are some means that we can harvest that better. Out of my other farming operations, I've got access to some uh, a couple of um, big headers with with open fronts. Um, so so, and one of those, given they're not worth very much money these days. So, 
I can afford to sacrifice one of them into feed some dirt through it and and suck some suck some stuff in there if I can pull that off. And uh, so yes, we, we may have a way of doing that. That'll be. <laughs> I don't want to brag about it yet. No, that'll still be really interesting <laughs> to see. I can't wait to hear more about it down the track. Um, Alistair, thanks so much for having us on the yarn today. Thanks for showing us through your pastures, and we can't wait to see them pop up down the track. Well, let's hope they pop out of the ground in a big way, literally. Um, I mean, it would be nice if, if, if uh, that new research work can, in fact, give us varieties um, and techniques that, that uh, fit it in as a valuable tool for where we're going in the future. And there are resources on, you guessed it, wool.com. This information on dryland pasture legumes, bicerulas, subclovers with red leg resistance. So, yep, head to wool.com under land and then click through to pasture and legumes to have a read. That's a wrap on legumes for today and this episode. Our podcast feedback inbox is always open for business at theyarnatwool.com. And to keep you up to date with the latest in the wool industry, Australian Wool Innovation is on Facebook, on Twitter at Wool Innovation and Instagram at Beyond the Bale. I'm Ellie Bigwood. Thanks for your company and see you soon for another yarn. Yeah.